yeah, it's a good way to start. The word of the Lord, Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now bear, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Adam. Good morning. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so great to see you all this morning. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Philippians and are almost done with chapter one. And so I'm enjoying it a lot. Hopefully you are as well. Before we dive into the sermon, just two quick announcements that we really wanted to highlight. Um, Some questions have... uh, arisen about EP Church's acceptance of the PPP loan funds from the United States government. PPP stands for Paycheck Protection Program. This was a program that was done back in 2020, uh, right when the pandemic began. If you have more questions, please get a one-page document that is in the church office that explains all of the background, or you can look in the Friday email where there's a digital copy um, in the Friday email that you can download in PDF version. We, the church elders, not just the staff and pastors, but the church elders long to hear questions and provide answers, and so we're going to have a special town hall meeting during the equip hour near the end of October. And so we don't have the exact date yet, but when we do, we will let you know, so be on the lookout. If you have questions, begin thinking of them, and we would love to answer them and have a time of discussion. Let's pray and dive into God's Word. Father God, we thank you so much for how you have given us your word so that we might know your salvation, that we might know your love for us, and we might then in turn live differently because we've been impacted and transformed by it. Please speak now through your word. Pray that you would be great and I, the speaker, would be small. Please speak now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Much of the movie Gladiator revolves around value and the worth of an individual's life. Maximus tells his soldiers before an epic battle, what we do in life echoes in eternity. But a more central figure in this question of value and worth is Commodus, the, protagonist, or the, the opponent in the movie. Commodus hears from his father, the emperor, that his father thinks he is not wise or good enough to be the next emperor. And Commodus says to his father, you wrote to me once, listing the four chief virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And as I read this list, I knew that I had none of them. None of my virtues were on your list. Even then, it was as if you didn't want me as your son. I searched the faces of the gods for ways to please you, to make you proud. One kind word, one full hug, while you pressed me to your chest and held me tight would have been like the sun on my heart for a thousand years. What is it in me that you hate so much? Commodus said to his father. And this 
struggle that communists had, we all have. We all want our life to be meaningful. We all want our life to have an impact. We all want to live a life that is worthy of honor, that makes us and our families proud. We seek so many ways to live a worthy life. What does living a worthy life look like for you? What does living a worthy life look like according to the Bible? In Philippians 1:27, Paul turns from an update about himself and his current situation to some ethical instruction, to some commands for the Philippians. Philippians 1:27 all the way to 2, chapter 2, verse 18 are all interconnected. They're all part of this instruction, these directions that he is giving to the Philippians. The Philippians were facing both internal and external opposition and suffering. And in the face of a difficult time and conflict within and without, the Philippians were in danger of slacking off, of taking things easy, of giving into the temptation to avoid conflict and difficulty and just coast along. We all face that temptation. Paul gives ethical instruction. He commands them to let your life Let your manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. But he roots it in the gospel, in the truth of the gospel. What is Paul's answer to the opposition, trials, and sufferings which both he and the Philippian church faced? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wonderful, glorious message of salvation that we know in Jesus Christ. In verse 27, Paul tells them, let your life Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. One commentator writing about this says, all of Paul's imperatives, his commands, are subsumed, taken under just one thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The imperatives are based in the indicatives, the truths of the gospel, of who Christ is and what he has done for us. The gospel of Christ provides the motive and the pattern for our Christian life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is why we live a worthy life, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is how we live a worthy life. The word, let your manner of life be, this is one word in the original language, this word is used only here in the entire New Testament, and it's a word that has the political, civic sphere as its context. This was to be a good citizen, is actually how the word is typically translated. And so Paul here is saying, be a good citizen of the kingdom of God. Let your life be one where you are a good citizen, worthy of what the gospel has said about you. In verse 27, he lets them know that they are citizens already, beloved, adopted children of God because of the gospel. They are already citizens of God's kingdom, a citizenship that cannot be taken away. And so because of that, They need to live a life worthy of the gospel in light of the reality that is already true of them. So the idea we're going to explore today is that we have been saved as children of God's kingdom. So let us live a life worthy of the gospel. We have been saved as children of God's kingdom. So let us live a life worthy of the gospel. And we're going to see this in four points. A life of standing firm, a life of striving together, a life of suffering, and a life of love. This is what in verses 27 to 30, Paul unpacks a worthy life, a gospel-worthy life as. The first element of living a life worthy of the gospel, which Paul highlights in these verses, is standing firm. In verse 27, he says they are to stand firm in one spirit. The word stand firm here is typically used of soldiers in battle. They are to stand firm on the line as the enemies are pressing in. 
Paul calls the Philippians to stand firm, and in the same sentence, he mentions opposition, suffering, struggle, conflict. We as Christians are called to stand firm because we live in this current reality, a spiritual war. We are in the midst of a struggle for the very hearts and souls of humanity between God, the creator, and sin, death, and Satan, our enemies. Standing firm in this current age is difficult. We live in a hostile world, a world hostile to Christ. And I'm not just talking about our present modern American society. I'm talking about all of history. We live in a world hostile to Christ because we live in between Jesus' first and his second comings, a period where the world has seen that God has provided salvation in Jesus Christ, but that salvation has not yet been fully realized. Sin still exists. Brokenness, death still exist. And so we live in a world hostile to Christ. We live in a world where sin and brokenness impact us daily. Opposition, suffering, hostility to us and the gospel are the norm. They have been the norm throughout human history. Look at church history. The past hundred years of American Christianity is not the norm. It's the exception. Throughout, throughout Christian history and in many times and places, right now, people are being put to death because they believe in Jesus Christ. The ease that we as American Christians are used to is not normal as far as God and the Bible are concerned. We live in a hostile world. We live in a world where spiritual battle is currently ongoing. Sin, death, and Satan are spiritually attacking Christians. Some of you know this in your present life right now. In our Christian tradition, specifically Presbyterianism, Reformed tradition, we too often minimize the reality of spiritual warfare. We too often minimize the attacks of sin and Satan. Where is our strength and power to stand firm in the face of this overwhelming odds to come from? It says to stand firm in one spirit. Now, the word spirit here is typically used of the Holy Spirit. The ESV translates it in the lowercase, but that's because it could mean both. And the reality is I think it does mean both. How are we as Christians to live and stand firm in one spirit? We stand firm in the one spirit of God, and that is what gives us one spirit, the reality that each one of us is a temple of the Holy Spirit that is dwelling inside of us, unites us in an incredible way. I think personally that Paul is saying stand firm in the one Holy Spirit because the same words are used in Philippians 4.1 where he says stand firm in the Lord. And so this is typical of Paul's usage to say stand firm in one person of the triune God. The Spirit of God unites and empowers Christians to stand their ground in the midst of the struggles of life in this hostile world. In the face of opposition and suffering, in the face of our own and other sin, God calls us to stand firm, to hold the line, to not compromise, to not give in, to press on in faith, and especially to press on and stand firm in reliance on the Holy Spirit, because we can't do this on our own. The picture here is of a soldier holding his ground in the face of overwhelming, hostile charging forces. It's as if you are a soldier on your feet, and there is an, a line of cavalry charging against you. If you've ever seen the movie War Horse, it is a movie about 
soldiers who rode horses in World War I, and they, there's a scene where they are charging against uh, soldiers on foot, and that must have been terrifying to experience, to have soldiers on these giant horses charging against you would have caused many people to run away. But we are able to stand firm because our feet are firmly planted on the truth of the gospel, the reality of what God has already accomplished. And we are empowered, given power by the Holy Spirit to stand firm in the face of this opposition that we experience. So what is not standing firm? Sometimes it's good and helpful to know what is not standing firm before we talk about what is. In chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, Paul says to do nothing, to not do things from selfish ambition, to not look out for your own interests. Standing firm is not being selfish. It's not doing things out of selfish ambition and then saying, well, I'm just standing firm and being strong for the gospel. No. Another thing we see is that standing firm is not in chapter 2, verse 14. It's not grumbling and complaining about one another. It's not saying, well, I'm standing firm for the truth of the gospel, so I'm going to stand up against this individual, when in reality it might just be an issue that is okay to disagree on. In chapter 2, verse 16, we see that standing firm is not giving up the gospel. It's not ignoring God's word. It's holding fast to it. Standing firm is not being an aggressive jerk to those who disagree with us. Thank you, Bill. It should be funny. (laughs) Standing firm is not thinking you are always right or thinking that you have nothing to learn from others. That's not standing firm. Standing firm is not neglecting both the truth of the gospel and the high ethical call the gospel places on us. We need to have both of those. So those are some things that are not standing firm. What is standing firm? Standing firm is essentially Christians living life for God's glory by relying on the Holy Spirit as we are restored more and more into Christ-likeness, which is after the image of God. It's standing firm by relying on the Holy Spirit to produce the fruit in us that God has promised he will give us. We stand firm in the face of our own and others' sin. We stand firm in the face of the hostility of the world by holding on to God's word, his promises, his truth that is in here. And if we hold fast to that, we will do it in a humble manner because his word Jesus himself is humble to the utmost. Standing firm is going to be different for each individual and their specific time and place because there will be different ways that each person needs to stand firm in your own families, in your own work, in your different cultural point in time. But to stand firm, we need to be rooted in God's word and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. If we stand firm in the spirit, then God will produce his fruit in our lives, which he has promised. How do we rely on the Holy Spirit? Too often, I, and hope maybe, potentially, hopefully not, hopefully not, potentially many of you rely on our own strength, our own power, our own ability to live this life. How do we rely on the Holy Spirit? We do it through an active, daily prayer life where we acknowledge and confess our sins, repent of them, turn away from them, and pray that the Holy Spirit might fill us more and more and produce his Spirit fruit in us. Second, a second element of living a gospel-worthy life is striving together. We are able to strive together because we are children of God's kingdom in the gospel. Paul reminds the Philippians that they are not standing firm in the face of a hostile world in isolation. 
They're not on an island by themselves. They are together with their brothers and sisters. We need one another in this Christian life. The word striving here is the imagery of struggling together, straining against something difficult. The imagery of being together is strengthened by Paul saying that they are to strive side by side. They are to be together with each other in the midst of this striving. And they are to strive with one mind. The same word could be translated one soul. They are to be united, viewing other Christians as if they are themselves brothers and sisters, united, one body in Christ. What are they striving for? They are striving for the faith of the gospel. They are striving for the faith of the gospel. We're not fighting against individuals. We're not fighting against society. We're not fighting against something. We're fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're fighting for it to be produced in people's lives, to bring transformation, restoration, life transformation. We're fighting for people to be saved and restored to their creator. We're not fighting against them. We're fighting for ours and other Christians' faith to be strengthened and grow in maturity. Striving together for the gospel is only possible as we stand firm, united in the Holy Spirit. If we are not in the one Holy Spirit, then how can we be united? Because we will have different conflicting points of view about the truth. We need to be united in the Spirit. Standing firm in the Holy Spirit combined with striving together allow us as Christians to live a spiritually tenacious life in this hostile world. We need both. We need to stand firm in the one Spirit, and we need to be striving together as a united group. One commentator notes, Paul's image of striving together with one soul conveys the ideal of such unity among Christians that they are no longer striving as separate individuals, but striving together as one person. When Christians are fighting against each other rather than side by side, unity is lost. We might picture a group rowing in a boat together. The group needs each individual member. They're faster because of each other. They're better because of each other. But what would happen if those in the boat all pulled in different directions? What happened if their tempo was off and the people in the front were rowing very fast and the people in the back were rowing slower? What would happen? They wouldn't get very far. They wouldn't go very fast. They might go in circles. They might just wallow around in the water. They would not achieve their aim and goal. The imagery here is of us so united that we're working as one body in Jesus Christ, striving together for the goal of individuals and therefore society being transformed by the gospel and restored to what God originally intended us to live like. In our Christian relationships, we must each ask if we're seeking unity and peace. One of our membership vows, which we all have taken if we're members of EP Church, is do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Study its purity and peace. The people who wrote this membership vow use this word study not in the sense of, well, I'm going to study what peace means and then I'm good to go. I passed the test. No, study here means devote yourself to, give your life over to, seeking and developing We are to give our lives over to seeking and developing the peace and the purity of this church. Is that characteristic of you? Is that characteristic of us, EP Church, the people who have covenanted, made an agreement to live together 
as God's people here in Annapolis. Too often Christians break unity and peace. How do we break unity and peace? One way that we break unity and peace is through gossip and slander. We gossip with one another. We, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did and said? We slander people, say that their motives or their actions are for such and such reason when we, in reality, have no idea. Gossip and slander break unity and peace. What should we do instead of gossiping and slander? We should pray for each other. We should pray for other members. We should pray for our leaders. And we should refuse to hear bad reports. We should refuse. If somebody comes to me, oh, did you hear what so-and-so? I don't want to hear it. Have you gone and talked to that individual? I don't want to hear you say something bad about them. Do you want me to go with you and talk to them about this bad thing that you think they have done? Let's go and reconcile. Let's go and seek peace. A second way that we break unity and peace is by not pressing into conflict. Instead, we avoid conflict and we allow issues to fester. I get it. Conflict is incredibly awkward. I'm not a person who enjoys conflict either. Nobody does. But we don't press into conflict and we allow issues to fester so that they poison the water and sour all relationships. We should peacefully seek to resolve conflict with others, as Jesus calls us to in Matthew 18. First, going individually, then going with one other brother or sister to that individual. A third way that we break unity and peace is by not having charitable thoughts and thinking the best of others. God's word calls us to think the best of other people. When you hear that somebody says something you, you might not agree with, do you think charitably, oh, they might just have a different point of view and their point of view is equally legitimate as mine? Or do you immediately think, wow, that person is X, Y, and Z? Too often in our society, we think that somebody says, I agree with exposition, and we think they must agree with all the other positions that typically go with that point of view. We are to think the best of others, first and foremost. A fourth way that we break unity and peace is by making small, non-essential issues into central issues, and a reason to separate, and a reason to disagree and fight. As Christians, brothers and sisters, there's of course important things that we need to unite on and are central. The fact that Jesus is God, the fact that God is a trinity, the fact that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a sinless life and died in our place and rose again in new life. There are central, essential issues that we need to believe, but there is also a whole host of other things that we can disagree on, and it's okay. It's okay. It's actually good. It's actually good for us to disagree on certain non-essential things. Why? Because it helps us sharpen one another and understand other points of view and realize that there are places in this world that don't do it like Annapolis, like America, and they might do it very well, and we could learn from them. It is good to disagree on non-central, unimportant issues and to have a healthy discussion and for you to change your point of view and maybe for the other person to change their point of view. That is a good thing And the process of disagreeing in this can be a process by which the church strives together for unity. Our process of disagreeing in a loving, gentle way on these non-essential issues can actually unite us more and is the process that Paul is talking about here of striving together. Third, another aspect of living worthy of the gospel is living a life of suffering 
We are citizens, saved citizens of the king, the king who suffered to the uttermost. And we also, if we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, will live in our suffering well. The Christian is to be willing to suffer and must realize that suffering is a central part of the Christian life. We see this highlighted in a couple places in our passage. In verse 28, he says that we are to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. The word not frightened here is a language that conveys a horse startled on a battlefield, something that spooked the horse and caused it to shy away. We are not to be startled when people oppose us, when people oppose the gospel. We are not to be shying away, surprised, and therefore not standing firm. We are to stand firm despite the things that are intended by our enemies to startle us. Opponents here, Paul doesn't identify them in this specific passage, but throughout Philippians, he talks about these opponents. He first highlights in Philippians 1, the Roman authorities who opposed him and opposed the gospel, and as a result, he's in jail, in prison, in chains. Later on, he'll talk about the times that he has been beaten for the gospel by opponents. He'll talk about people in Philippi who are opposing the gospel. These are the Judaizers, which we've talked about before, who wanted the Christians there to follow the additional non-biblical traditions, customs, and laws that had been set up by the Jewish people and their faith. These are the opponents. Not being frightened of opponents or not being frightened of suffering, combined to convey Paul's instruction for Christians to not be intimidated in any way, no matter if there's opposition from the world, our neighbors, our loved ones, no matter where it comes from, the opposition or the suffering, we are to stand firm in the gospel in one spirit. We are not to be frightened and shy away. This goes on, and Paul elaborates more in verse 28, says, 828, he says, this is a clear sign to them, the opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. The Christian's endurance under opposition and suffering communicates two different things to two different people. For people who are Christians, it's a sign of their salvation. For people who are not Christians, it's a sign of the Christian's destruction, they think. In verse 29, he elaborates, he says, it has been granted to you that you should also suffer for his sake, I truncated a little bit, but he's saying that it has been granted to Christians that for the sake of the gospel, they are going to suffer just as Jesus suffered. Granted, it's been given as a gift is what he's communicating here. Salvation does not exclude suffering. It's not an escape from difficulty, opposition. It's not an automatic, easy life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Salvation actually includes suffering and trials and difficulty in this life. Why? because that's what Jesus did. And salvation is following, a trusting in Jesus and then a following in his footsteps. Salvation includes suffering, according to this Bible passage. One commentator explains that suffering on behalf of Christ will be seen by enemies of the cross as a sign of destruction, but believers will recognize suffering on behalf of Christ as a sign of salvation, of union with Christ their suffering Savior. Paul in verse 30 reminds them that they all, all Christians are part of the same conflict. The word conflict here was often used of athletic competition, and athletic competitions occurred where? In the Roman arenas, throughout, spread throughout the Roman Empire. And where, what else occurred in the Roman arenas? Christian martyrdom. Christians being thrown to the lions, burned like human torches, occurred in Roman arenas. This is what Paul is communicating to them. Christians will suffer and struggle 
if they are living a life worthy of the gospel. We see this in other passages. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul writing to his young pastoral protege, Timothy, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, not a few of you, all who live a godly life, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering, persecution for our faith, trials and difficulty is a natural part of Christian life in this broken world. All people, even those who do not yet know Christ, all people experience suffering and trials. People who die from cancer, loved ones who suffer from depression and suicide, the loss of a job. There's so much brokenness in the world, this world brought about by sin. So everybody experiences suffering, but what Paul is saying is that there's a uniquely su- unique suffering for Christians, those who suffer because they have believed in Jesus Christ and been saved. This suffering might look like giving up a job promotion because you feel that your boss is doing things that are unethical. It might look like being okay with a lower grade in school because you don't, aren't okay with cheating like some of your classmates do. It might look like any number of things, suffering because you have chosen to follow God and live a life worthy of the gospel. It doesn't look that often in America like dying for our faith, but that is occurring right now throughout the world, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in India, in North Korea, in some places in China. People are dying because they have said, I want to believe in Jesus. He is the source of life, and I will trust in him even if I die. We as Christians are able to call our suffering joy. In James 1, James reminds us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The Bible and church history is filled with examples of our awesome God using our trials, our suffering, and even persecution for his purposes, his glory, both in our lives and in the lives of others, as people see how Christians trust despite the difficulty they're going through, despite the suffering they're going through, and they say, I want to believe in a God like that. I want to know the God that they know. Finally, a final element of living a gospel-worthy life is that it is a life characterized preeminently by love. God has extravagantly loved us in the gospel and we are therefore to love others in a similar manner. Though we are looking only at verses 27 to 30, we must remember that the Philippian church, when they heard this letter read, they didn't take it like we did in little chunks. They heard the whole thing read in one sitting. They probably sat down then and digested it, but they were to hear it all together. And what comes before and after verses 27 to 30? A call to love. Again and again in chapter 1 and in the beginning parts of chapter 2, we see a call to love. In verse 9, Paul has has prayed that the Philippians, that their love would abound more and more. In verse 16, Paul explains that some proclaim Christ and the gospel out of love for both Paul and for others, and he holds that up as something to be emulated. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul will root his ethical commands to the Philippians, in both Christ's abundant love, which sent him as a suffering servant, and the love that Christians should have for one another. Living a life worthy of the gospel 
preeminently means that we will love people well. We live a life worthy of the gospel because we have been saved in the gospel in Jesus Christ. How have we been saved? Why have we been saved? Because of God's abundant love that propelled Jesus to come and die on our place so that we might be saved. We see this in 1 John 3. Let me read a couple of verses where John unpacks this. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then he goes on, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. We are to love one another. A group of four to eight-year-olds were asked, what does love mean? And I wish I could read all of their answers to you because they're amazing, but I want to highlight a few. One little girl said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> love is when you go and eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> Take note, guys. <laughs> love is when you tell a guy that you like his shirt and he wears it every day. This is my favorite. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her, for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. You see in these answers, some of them humorous, most of them humorous, that love is not just romantic feelings. Love is not just feelings of affection. Love is also concrete action. It's doing something. It's the same manner in the Bible. The love we should have for others should lead us to loving, compassionate action, just as God's love for his creation, for his lost sinful creation, love led to concrete loving action. Love is a combination of both grace and truth. Too often we err to one side. We need to hold both intention to, for it to be true Christian love. If our love is only characterized by cheap grace, then it becomes mere affection or permissiveness, which does not call others out of their sin. However, if our love is only truth-oriented, then people may be left wondering if we care about them at all or if we really love them at all because we won't show compassion, empathy, or understanding. Our love, if it's only characterized by truth, may turn into harshness and unrelenting demands, and it won't really be love. Our love must be filled with both grace and truth, a grace which sees that in Christ all our sin and failings have been covered by his death and resurrection, a truth which realizes that that salvation was given to us so that we might be restored to what God originally intended us to be, a people who live in righteousness and holiness which pleases him and loves other people. By way of conclusion, let me point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who did live a worthy life, and if we've believed and trusted in him, we have that worthy life already. The very one who is the message of the gospel. Jesus embodies love and is full of grace and truth. In our denomination's recent report on human sexuality, I really encourage you to read it, the authors beautifully capture this when they write, Jesus is both the holy one and the merciful one. He cleanses the temple, yet eats with sinners. He gives Martha teaching on truth, yet he gives Mary only tears even though they both said the same thing to him about their grief. He gives each of them what they most need at the moment. On the cross, 
Jesus fulfills both the unyielding demands of the law, yet also the most wonderful purposes of God's love. On the cross, Jesus fulfills both the unyielding demands of the law, yet also the most wonderful purpose of God's love. In Jesus Christ, sin and death have been done away with. If you have believed in him, you are an adopted, beloved child of God, restored and saved, and that is yours in faith, and it cannot be taken away. God won't love you anymore. He won't love you any less based on what you do. But that love, that call, that adoption demands that we live differently. And we will live differently if we have truly believed. We can, therefore, in the power of the Spirit, live a life worthy of the gospel, a life of standing firm, a life of striving together, a life of suffering, and a life of love. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you so thankful for your gospel, for the salvation that you have poured out upon us. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus we have been saved, redeemed, adopted, and we are now citizens of your kingdom, beloved children, that is ours, given to us by your grace, received by faith. And because of it, we can live a different, transformed life worthy of the gospel. We pray that you would empower and enable us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.